big announcement. I am so excited to announce this because this is something that I have been working on and putting my love into for quite some time now. It is the Together in Love, the four-month relationship mentorship that I am putting on for you guys. This is really a mentorship that's focused on learning how to love yourself more authentically, how to open your heart to real love, how to create relationships that ultimately leave you and your current or future partners fulfilled on a soul level. So this is for singles. This is for couples. This is for triads. It's really for everybody out there who's wanting to deepen their relationship with themselves and create the optimal love life for them. So you'll join me. You'll have a community of like-minded people, and we're all going to traverse this tricky waters of self-discovery, emotional intimacy, sexual exploration. You know, we go through the entire thing, and I'm bringing on some of my favorite guest expert coaches who are also putting on workshops. So you'll have coaching with me. We'll have group calls. We'll have workshops. We have all kinds of things. And I absolutely guarantee by the end of this, you're going to feel a a shift and a transformation within yourself and feel more comfortable expressing your desires, how to get those. What what happens with conflict resolution? Um, How do we use that to strengthen our relationship as opposed to instead of how to be a detriment to it. So if you guys are interested, I am going to announce it and release it fully within the uh, next couple of weeks. But if you are interested, let me know on my social media at Wit and Love, or you can email me to save your spot for sure. And I can make sure that you're on the list to receive the email as soon as I launch. Much love, guys. Hope to see you soon. Okay, real talk. I know that if you're like me, You've definitely had some maybe awkward conversations or a little bit of uneasiness about visiting a clinic or your gynecologist or a healthcare professional when it comes to an STD test. Maybe they give you that look. I have a friend who can only give him a sticky note to tell him that she wants to get an STD test. Look, a lot of people are like this. So this is why we've partnered up with Let's Get Checked for their STD testing. Their mission which I love, is to make professional health testing easily accessible and ensure that there are no individual that ever feels put off by getting an STD test. It's so important. I can't say it louder for the people in the back. Get tested. Please get tested. It's just smart. One, it's delivered straight to your door. So all you do is go online to Let's Get Checked. You pick whatever um, test you want. and They have all kinds of panels for STD testing. You collect your sample at home, you return your sample. They give you a prepaid shipping label. From there, they review your results. Um, and then you'll get it back in about two to five days. Then you'll have a consultation where you can talk to a nurse if you want. And then in some cases, if necessary, you can even get a prescription and they'll send it to the pharmacy of your choosing. So really, it can't not be easier. And this comes from the highest ranking levels of accreditation. So know that this is very, very confidential. They know absolutely what they are doing. And you don't have to have those uncomfortable office visits anymore with the funny little side eye of maybe you shouldn't be having sex, whatever it is. It take it makes it so simple to get tested, and it's just the way to do it. Use our code trylgc.com slash TSWL for 20% off of your at-home STD testing. Again, that's try, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com slash T-S-W-L, and you will get 20% off of that bad boy. Try, T-R-Y-L-G-C.com slash 
T-S-W-L for 20% off. Okay, guys, Wednesday and I have been talking a little bit more about some of our favorite things because we want to share our brands and the companies that we truly love. And I found a new one. I really did. I found one that I cannot live without. They sent me a box and I basically hounded them to send me another one. And I feel like my life will never be the same if I if I don't keep drinking this. It is the Element, L-M-N-T, Element Electrolytes. I use this as soon as I wake up in the morning or anytime I go sweat. You've probably seen me playing pickleball a lot lately or wake surfing. I just put these electrolytes straight into my water and it kicks it kickstarts the day. It helps me stay hydrated. It just makes me feel better. What we hear is we need to be drinking more water. Yes, most of us all need to drink more water, but for proper hydration, we need to drink water and electrolytes. And a lot of the times the electrolytes are just forgotten because we're so focused on drinking the water. Let me tell you why we need electrolytes. It helps nerve impulses fire, regulate fluid balance, help you produce energy. It strengthens bone. And you know what, you guys? Increase endurance, performance, and recovery. We can all use that right now. Plus, if you're like me and you kind of um, uh, try different diets, uh, whether you're fasting or low-carb or keto, these electrolytes specifically are key for relieving hunger, cramps, headaches, tiredness, and dizziness. Thank God. Guess what? No sugar, no artificial ingredients, no fake coloring, all that yucky stuff. You don't need that. This is why one of the reasons I'm obsessed with this brand. Rob Wolf was the co-founder of it. He is a former research biochemist, two times New York Times bestselling author, and a Navy SEAL. Talk about a resume. Talk about a resume. So NBA players, tech leaders, um, we have NFL players, Olympians, all everyone is using Element Electrolytes, and it just kind of helps you out. If you're in a hot environment, you're getting a good workout in, you just want to feel better. Or you know what? If you went out and you drank too much the night before, I'm telling you, this will be your lifesaver. Single serve packets, grab and go. You get 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. Why is this important? Because most of us are deficient in sodium, potassium, and magnesium, and it's really hard to get the latter two, the um, potassium and the magnesium, through your diet. So this this makes it super easy. You don't even have to think about it. Throw it in your purse, your gym bag, boom, like that. And try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a salty friend of yours. You'll get your money back, no questions asked. Free shipping on all orders. You guys, I cannot stress enough how amazing this is. All of my friends are now drinking it along with me. And it's it's something that I have to keep hidden from them because they're so obsessed with it. And I know Wednesday does the same. Her son went through the entire box immediately before we could even do any, any post or anything for them. So you know it's good. I promise, promise, promise you. So check them out. L-M-N-T. That's Element. Drink L-M-N-T.com slash T-S-W-L. That's Drink lmnt.com slash TSWL. On this episode of True Sex and Wild Love, Wednesday and I may have one of our most interesting guests. And I don't say that lightly because we've had some really great people on the show. Most of the time, I don't read someone's bio because, you know, that can get a little bit boring. But I promise you, this is the most interesting bio I have ever read or I've even heard of. So I'm just going to read it for you guys so you get a full idea of what we are about to dive into when this episode. 
We are talking with Dr. Victoria Hartman, who holds a PhD in human sexuality with an emphasis on clinical sexology, as well as a master in public health. Her primary focus is forensic sexology and the preservation of erotic artifacts, including the archiving of sexually explicit films. Already wildly interesting, but wait, there's more. Her work centers on the effects of dark web violence in explicit films. She authors the book, I Love Dead People, Inside the Mind of Death Fetishist. Based on her thesis, Anne has proposed a new theoretical framework for classifying paraphilias. She is the current director of the Erotic Heritage Museum in Las Vegas. Wow. I didn't know anything about this world. I'm so excited for you guys to check this out. Let me know how you feel about it. Victoria Hartman. Hey, Wednesday, we're back. Hey, Whitney, we're back. I mean, thank goodness you're back because you were all caught up in a, what was it first, a category four hurricane. Yeah, it came out of nowhere, by the way. We woke up in Cancun yesterday morning. Everything was fine. No big deal. Easy peasy. No one at the at the um, resort that we were at was worried at all. And then I just, I checked my phone at like 8.30 in the morning. My dad goes, you better get the hell out of there. I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, man. So, I, I, was, I was nervous when I got your texts. It was like a real-time update about you getting out, and I'm so glad you're safe, darling. Me too. Me but too. you know what you did? Likes. You did. Okay, God bless. Because you you just went from one shit storm to another shit storm. Because our country is a shit. It's a shit show and a shit storm right now. <laughs> so, out of the out of the frying pan into the fire for you, wit. All right. Well, here we go. You know, keep things exciting. I guess. <laughs> Look, you know what? I'm so glad that when uh, things feel like they're falling apart, we get to talk to experts about what's going on, about what they do, about how what they do can help us understand um, the mess that we're in right now. I'm so excited that we have Dr. Victoria Hartman here with us today. Me too. Hi, Victoria. Hi. Victoria. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much. I am so grateful to be with you guys today. I feel like you're going to help us figure a lot of things out, and then you're going to help us understand things that we might never have heard of <laughs> or even really thought of. <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, Whitney, I was saying to Victoria um, before you hopped on, you know, it's not a competition, but you do hands down have the most insane bio of any <laughs> guest. <laughs> Without a doubt. I mean, it, I, you know, I gotta be honest. I was really tired. I didn't sleep last night trying to get away from this hurricane. And I was like, okay, I gotta pump myself up. And then I just read your bio and I was like, oh my God, I cannot miss this for the life of me. <laughs> I'm glad I mean, you're safe. I'm glad you're safe. And um, you know, I hear that so much that I'm I'm almost like desensitized to it. And then I have to remind myself to be gentle with people because of what I do. <laughs> okay. You'll, you'll ease us. You'll ease us into an understanding of who you are and what you do. You, you have uh, a doctorate in human sexuality, and but your emphasis, your primary focus is forensic sexology and the preservation of erotic artifacts, including sexually explicit films. Okay. First of all, just explain to us what is forensic psychology and how in the heck did you get into that? <laughs> who, who even are you? <laughs> okay. 
Um, I, I have, I actually, I'm way of an overachiever and I have two PhDs. Um, just because the topic fascinated me so much, I had to do it again. But uh, I, um, so I got into um, this line of work actually because of a personal experience. I, um, and let's just go right into it, shall we? Let's so, do it. Um, so when I was a teenager, I uh, survived an extreme experience of sexual violence. And um, I was the one that survived. The other girl that was there the same time didn't. And after a lot of years of personal struggle with addiction and so forth, and then cleaning myself up in my 20s, I wanted to try to determine why people commit acts of violence. Like, what, what is the psychology of that? And that became the focus of my my. Uh, trajectory. And so I got into college in my late 20s um, after having a family and so forth. And my youngest was, or I'm sorry, my eldest was, uh, what, seven at the time. And so I started back to, I went to college and uh, actually in my freshman year, I stumbled upon abnormal psychology and I was immediately hooked. (laughs) I immediately was like, this is what I want to do. I didn't know what that was going to look like, but I, I just, I ate it up. And that um, then morphed into abnormal sexuality, or, or I don't want to use that kind of terminology because I don't, I'm trying to get away from pathologizing, even though there are mm-hmm. some pathologies that certainly can be found in psychology and sexuality. But um, so I found, so that trajectory then led me to studying um, not just people who commit acts of sexual violence, but those who fetishize it to the point of uh, either murdering someone or so forth, right? And um, for the purposes of pleasure. And I thought, you know, I wanted to be that person on Time Magazine that could anticipate when someone was going to uh, commit an act of violence and prevent it from happening. So it wouldn't, so no one else would be harmed the way that I was or the the girl that was that mm. didn't survive. And, um, uh, and so I, uh, as I went along, I thought I was a big shot and I coined the term progressive paraphilia. And I was like, okay, I'm going to prove that this thing is a thing and we can actually determine that people uh, can be seen before they commit acts of violence, and then we can offer services or prevent it from happening, so forth. Well, the great thing about a friend of mine who's a really famous scholar, he often says, the great thing about science is we're usually wrong. Yes. And um, <laughs> I was very wrong. Uh, happily so. There actually is no such thing as a progressive paraphilia. What I found in my research as I was finishing up my second doctorate was there are two kind of distinct camps when it comes to uh, abnormal psychology and the perpetrating that might happen as a result of that. Uh, One are, you have people who have paraphilias. They happen to fetishize, and I focused on the death fetish. Um, They just happen to fetishize this, but it often manifests itself in a BDSM consensual type of activity that they seek out with other consenting partners. And Mm -hmm. what really surprised me in that research is they actually 
as they found, as these individuals who are paraphilic found that they had this particular sexual interest, were mortified by it and were were Mm -hmm. scared to death that they were actually going to harm people. And then when they found other people online and online communities, especially with the early BBSs and so forth, um, that experiencing that with other folks in a consensual setting um, reduced their um, abnormal behavior. They were able to relate better with others and became altruistic to those who were struggling to find their way as well. So that was really fascinating to me. And then there's another camp, and I'm not so much of an expert on those that actually perpetrate. Um, a colleague of mine, Dr. Lee Malore, he and I have done some podcasts together. He's an expert in people like Ted Bundy and so forth. He actually studies the FBI forensics and so forth. Um, there are those who uh, perpetrate, and the sexual aspect is simply an addition to their pathology. Um, so there's 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 differentiation between those who are paraphilic and those who are perpetrators, and that was a big surprise to me, and proved that I was wrong in my assumption. But at the same time, it made it possible to make for for scholars to make room for folks who have this particular sexual interest and to not pathologize them. If you could see my face, my mouth is on the ground. <laughs> this is already the most fascinating conversation I've had yet. And I, wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm a little bit speechless, which. Right. Is, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, no need to apologize. Can I, can I just first say how I just want to honor and underscore the way you experienced a, a very um, a severe trauma, mm-hmm. very severe trauma. Thanks. And the fascinating thing about your work for me, Victoria, is how you don't turn away from things. And is it that you mind that trauma? What was your, when you decided to start studying what you did, when you decided to write a book called I Love Dead People, Inside the Mind of Death Fetishes, mm-hmm. was part of that a, re, a refusal to hide from your own trauma? Or what was your personal process where you segued from having experienced this trauma to needing to understand it because a lot of people would just bury it and never want to think about it again. Right. Um, that's a really, I don't know that anyone's ever actually asked that question. That is a great question. Thank you for being so curious. Um, I would have to say the, the time period after the trauma and being lost in this addiction cycle that I was, was, that was the only way I knew how to cope with it was to, to develop the drug. I was more of an alcoholic than a drug addict, but the, the life that I had, even as a young person and in my early twenties as an addict, I found myself on the streets at times. Um, uh, I wasn't the, you know, obviously a fully present parent for my, my young child. And, it didn't alleviate the pain. It didn't alleviate the trauma. It just made it worse. It was almost as though I was compounding it by perpetuating the cycle of violence against myself and continuing to put myself into into situations that just didn't help. It made it worse. And it seemed, and I know this sounds a little dry or insensitive, and I don't mean it to, but I found that 
doing to perpetuating my own pain didn't make any sense. It wasn't logical to do that. What was I do? How was I helping myself? How was I helping the the one that died? How was I, how was I, you know, being a fully, um, involved person in my, my children, my child's life, my family's life. Um, my husband, I, I wasn't living a full life. It was almost like I was a walking dead person. And, it it seemed as though it made more sense for me to go, okay, I can use this experience either to hurt myself or others, or I can use this experience to help others. And it became a mission of mine to want to alleviate that pain that I experienced in others uh, if the, when they went through it. So, you know, part of that path of studying this was also, I worked at a rape crisis center for four and a half years as a as a group facilitator. And that experience of giving back was so powerful and watching other people work through their trauma and come out the other side was so powerful that it just, it, it was a, a catalyst to me just wanting to do this work for others. And I got benefit from it by watching others heal and grow. And that's it in a nutshell. And that's a very uh, courageous and brave path to take because I think like Wednesday said, most people would shy away from it and be too afraid to look at it. And that's that's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. It really is. Thank you. And surprising. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, Whitney, when we did our uh, master class talks on female sexuality um, in Tulum a while back, mm-hmm. um, Victoria won't be surprised to hear this, but we were talking about female sexuality and what happened, Victoria, was woman after woman raised her hand. It was a very safe, uh, you know, space, I think. Mm -hmm. And here we are talking about sexuality being very sex positive, sharing, I was sharing science. Whitney was talking a lot about her personal experience. Mm -hmm. And we thought we were talking about female sexuality and woman after woman raised her hand it was such an honor that they shared it with us and talked about sexual trauma that mm-hmm. they had experienced. Mm-hmm. And I hope they're listening right now. I mean, I felt a little bit ill-equipped, you know, for the, not for the fact of it. I think you and I knew that would happen, Whitney, but just mm-hmm. the sheer number of women who were sitting there and we talked about sex and they needed to talk about the sexual traumas that they had experienced and Victoria, I can't thank you enough for being our guest. And I just hope those women are listening today. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it's almost like you can't you can't talk about one without the other. And that's I, I mean, I think the statistics are are pretty clear. It, it's it's such a um, a problem in in our not just our culture, but in how t- human beings interact with one another. And and as a segue. Um, Wednesday, that's what really stood out to me. And we can get to this at whatever point you want to in the show when you were talking about um, the ethical and consensual word usage in in uh, describing non-monogamy and how you were challenging that with disclosed. And I'm going to, you know, in total transparency, I might, because of the work that I do, I might see uh, predatory behavior a little bit faster or 
Of course, there's also confirmation bias. I have to be honest about that. There could be that too. Uh, in non-monogamous communities where this kind of language is used and has the potential to shield predatory people uh, because there's such a desire to celebrate sex positive um, culture or, you know, a sex positivity, I should say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've had women's like here in Las Vegas, people that I've known who move in those circles and have horrific stories to tell about their experiences in sex positive, non-monogamous communities. And people yeah. are not talking about this, especially when you have high profile people who are out there as educators talking about sex positiveness and about non-monogamy. And turns out they have a litany of individuals who have been harmed by them. This is so, I mean, this is the first time, Whitney, isn't it, that we have gotten into this? And I want to thank you for this, uh, Victoria. Okay. So just segueing into this discussion about non-monogamy, I mean, Whitney, would you say that most of our listeners are interested in non-monogamy that's been my experience yeah I think so if they're I mean I think they're open to it they're open to the having the discussion they want to hear more about it regardless if they personally want that type of relationship or not I think they're open-minded enough to explore those topics 100 percent and but this is what's great about having Victoria on I mean to Victoria's point um so often you know I try to be neutral as a social scientist when I describe different relationship styles. Mm. And you, Whitney, have been, you know, in open relationships. I don't think you ever advocate for anything, but you certainly certainly advocate for your coaching clients if they want that relationship style. Sure. And and one of the things that we haven't really dug into and that uh, Victoria, like a good scientist, wants us to get at, and I'm so fascinated by this, is... You know, I've heard so many stories from people who feel coerced into non-monogamy. I've heard so many stories about pickup artist dudes who, like, abuse the script of, quote, ethical, unquote, non-monogamy. I hate that term. Um, (laughs) It's one of the reasons Victoria and I bonded. I hate it as an anthropologist who, you know, like, you're not allowed to say that you're more ethical than a woman who's doing her non-monogamy on the DL Mm. to try to get out of a relationship because she's with a violent partner, for example, right? But Victoria, I love that you're bringing up this idea. Okay, we're going to talk about different relationship styles openly. We're not going to judge different relationship styles. So let's be real. Let's not uh, fixate that that non-monogamy, disclosed non-monogamy, which is my preferred term, is somehow always a walk in the park because everybody's enlightened. You're saying, Victoria, if I understand correctly, you know, power relations Mm -hmm. and uh, social inequalities play into every relationship style, including non-monogamy. Absolutely. And I celebrate you challenging the, the use of these terms. And it was a reckoning for me as well. So, you know, to be humble for a moment, I often challenged, uh, especially male and male-identified um, sexuality scholars on this use of the term consensual. And 
I challenge them as someone who previously advocated for the term ethical um, because in my studies and in the studies of other people, saying I practice consensual non-monogamy assumes a lot. How do we know people are actually consenting to something? The neuroscience on consent um, you know, illuminates this. And in particular, I would recommend a book uh, by David Grossman, um, if I'm getting that right. Um, it's called On Killing. Of course, I would read something like that. Of course. <laughs> you would. Um, <laughs> but to. very on brand. Very on brand, right. Um, he discusses uh, what uh, consent looks like in war and equates that uh, or, or makes certain... Um, he, he points out certain parallels with sexuality. Um, a lot of us have heard the flight or fight, right? Uh, those are the reactions that people mm-hmm. have when they're when they feel threatened. Well, from a neuroscientific perspective, there's a lot more going on than just sort of these binary reactions of fight or flight. At least in uh, in war, when there's a threat, there's two other ones: posture and submission that people use in order to reduce harm for themselves. And there's a whole mm-hmm. neuroscientific process that I won't go into that leads up to those kinds of reactions. But to say, just to come back to non-monogamy, to mm-hmm. say, well, I practice consensual non-monogamy. Well, do you? Because how do you know you really have someone consenting to your overtures or if they're simply, they don't necessarily have to fight or flee, they can also posture and they can submit in order to reduce harm if they feel that harm Mm. is a potential. Even if you don't intend it to be, you don't know for sure. So even just on on the surface, consensual is a problematic term. Now, where I had Mm. to learn the lesson with ethical is, well, whose ethics are we actually using to define what ethical non-monogamy is? So I had to actually check myself and go, you know what? That's not an accurate term either, because while there might be uh, certain understandings around ethics, the interpretation of those can be very different. And disclosed is just more of an accurate term. It it takes the assumption out of the statement, I'm non-monogamous. I'm disclosing the fact that I'm non-monogamous. And I think it opens up the conversation, the question of two people being able to go, well, what does your non-monogamy look like? So thank you, Wednesday, for that. Well, thanks for um, articulating it better than I have. And I want to ask Whitney, in your relationship coaching, um, to Victoria's point, and I do, I did come out and say I prefer the term disclosed non-monogamy. And people who like the term ethical mono- monogamy, non-monogamy, excuse me, um, kind of went bananas about it. And um Victoria and I really bonded over this. We said, isn't it an interesting experience that when you try to tell people, you know, your relationship style is not, not ethical. You don't get to use that term. For example, Mm -hmm. you're white and privileged, right? And you live in Brooklyn, say, or Austin, right? And non-monogamy is on the table for you. And so you can talk about it. That doesn't really make you any more ethical than a woman who would get drowned in the swimming pool in Saudi Arabia for having her hair showing or for kissing a guy, right? you're not more ethical than she is. You're more privileged. There's that, which I really object to. Then 
Victoria and I really got into it um, a bit about something that I know you've described seeing, which is sometimes um, unicorns, for example, can just get treated like shit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. By the couple that wants them. And that's a real abuse of power. And then, you know, they can get t- treated as like needs machines and they're not treated like people. Unicorns come to me all the time, you know, and say that. I just use the term because um, it's a term that's popular and people will know what it means. I don't necessarily think it's a great term. Um, and then I don't like, really like that term either. <laughs> like, okay. Where did it come from? <laughs> well, it seems really humanizing, like just it's on human, yeah. right? Yeah, you're like a magical creature. You know? yeah. <laughs> you're a person. You're a person who wants to date couples, and you you have feelings, and 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 people need to respect that and not use you as their third, you know, fulfillment, right. like a play toy or something. Yeah, yeah like a toy. you know. Yeah. And then the other thing is that often, and I have seen this. I have seen people agree to non-monogamy because they feel obliged to, because otherwise they will lose the relationship. So this is why I prefer the term disclosed non-monogamy. But I agree. Whitney, I like that a lot. Yeah. But Whitney, how often uh, do you see these situations in your coaching where, you know, there are these abuses of power in this relationship style that you and I are generally, you know, very um, into as, you know, a thinker and a pra- on my part and a practitioner on yours? I mean, you definitely see it from time to time, but I don't I, I don't think I see it as much. And maybe that's part where I need to be looking at it um, more for sure. But I think a lot of the times it can mainly come down to the fact of let me let me just say, okay, I'm going to do this so I don't lose the relationship. So they're like presenting, I guess to a certain extent, they're being coerced a little bit. They're presenting all of the facts as to why this could work. And then you're like, uh, I'm just going to try it because I'm too afraid to leave the relationship or I'm too afraid because of that. If I do do this, then what does that mean for my relationship? And that's sad, you know? But then I also talk to people who are all gung-ho for it too. So there's a full spectrum. Is that how you got into into uh, disclosed non-monogamy yourself? Were you, did you feel pressured into it initially? Yeah, to a certain extent. At very first... I was, I felt like, oh man, if I don't do this, then, you know, as I'm thinking back, I would say I went through a portion of, because he brought it up and I said, no, I don't want to do it. And I was pretty clear about that. And then I came back in and I had an experience where I was like, wait a minute, I am interested in exploring this. So let me explore it. So then I started exploring it. And then I think points throughout that was like, oh, now I feel a little bit pressured because if I don't do it, then what does that mean? You know, or if I don't do it, then are we going to break up? Does that mean I'm not conscious or woke enough? Ooh, Victoria, I love this point. Like, yep. how do we understand people who feel pressured to do it because it's normative, right? Like there are communities where disclosed non-monogamy is normative. Mm-hmm. How are we to understand that pressure that Whitney said of like, am I uncool if I don't do it. And that is exactly, just, that is one of the biggest points, um, is this idea of, um, you aren't woke enough. There's a lot of shame in these communities that I've seen attached to jealousy, insecurity, um, the need for reassurance, 
this idea of compersion. Well, you should just have compersion for your partner. If not, you're holding them back. There's a lot of shaming people who struggle with being non-monogamous. And so again, then let's come back to what David Grossman said about posturing. Well, then in order to stay connected to the community, then people feel pressured into, you know, and I'm not using posturing in a negative sense. It's, well, I want to make sure that I stay connected and attached to my, my, um, my community that's important to me. So I have to pretend to be able to go along with this. And I think that does a disservice to the people who are trying to explore it and makes them vulnerable to those who would want to exploit people and their insecurities. It's kind of all like it's a circle that that goes into itself. Right. And it's perpetuated by the use of these, this kind of language um, of ethical and consensual. And, and I think also it makes the people who would want to want to shame others have a vested interest in guilting them into um, agreeing to certain relationship styles. And I think it does a, a more of a service to these communities to, I don't necessarily want to say call it out, but to recognize it and, and admit that there's the potential for this kind of, of exploitation in these communities. Because I think when we can acknowledge that there's the potential for abuse, then we can act in advance and try to reduce that same potential, but to not talk about it at all, or to shame those who are struggling is, it does a disservice to, to the individual and the community. Does that make sense? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that 100% because I'm, I'm the first to say for me, non-monogamy was hard. And I mean, I'm still something that I love talking about. It's still something that I believe. And I still think it really works for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And when when I have when I points throughout certain I don't know online or whatever it was from people saying me telling me that if it, if I didn't deal with jealousy, you know, then I'm just not enlightened enough. To me, it's like go fuck yourself. Like, what are you talking about? I'm a human. I'm going to have emotions and jealousies and all of this, and that's totally normal. Right. So, like, so if someone's like 100 gung ho the other way. It's just a big fuck you very much. <laughs> thank you very much for that. You know, I I love the idea that go into non-monogamy, if that's interesting to you, with your eyes open that you might encounter certain forms of coercion. They might be subtle or they might be explicit. Yeah. You know mm-hmm. what I wanted to talk to you both about? I Because I wrote Untrue, I get all kinds of, DMs and emails. Oh, you wouldn't believe it, but maybe you would. And a lot of times I hear from heterosexual men who want to be in the container of ethical non-monogamy, but they think nothing of playing every patriarchal card and telling me stuff like, oh, you know, I'm a big tech guy. I can fly you out here on my plane. This was in the time. I mean, Hello, I've been married for 20 years. (laughs) You're barking up the wrong tree. But I know people get that idea from my book. But that kind of invitation where you at once call yourself ethically Mm non-monogamous and then play every card about, you know, 
leverage off that there's a wage gap, leather off, leverage off that there's an everything gap between straight men and straight women and between, between really like white straight men and everybody else mm-hmm. to get what you want sexually and subsume it under the rubric of ethical. That to me, I don't like that either. I don't like a, a, a hetero cis guy uh, who's, you know, playing the money card, being able to call himself ethical. That right. is a form, to me. That's a very subtle, not not so subtle, not so um, subtle form no. of co- coercion. Right, and and you make a really good point, and we've seen that in these communities. And I'm not going to name names, but at least three high profile white, well, either cis or or queer identified men who have um, created careers around. Uh, the advancement of ethical or consensual non-monogamy. And if you only, you only have to dig right under the surface um, to find that they've been outed as, as um, individuals that have uh, at the very least had questionable relationship uh, styles and at worst were predatory and had to enter into accountability pods and, um, or, you know, their, their, um, their business as it were, uh, was, Mm. um, challenged by people in the community. And it's, we're not just talking one or two women, we're talking 10, 15, um, well-known sometimes women who have come out and said, no, I actually was coerced by this person or worse. I was lied to, I was cheated on. Uh, I, um, you know, they, um, what's the term that I'm thinking of? Uh, they stealthed me in the middle of a sexual interaction. They didn't disclose their STI status to me. I mean, we were seeing this, um, at least from what I can see so far in, you know, the, the white privileged men that have, attached themselves to these community and made themselves high profile in them. It happens. Yeah. I mean, dudes are definitely leveraging off, uh, an openness about non-monogamy at this cultural moment, uh, Mm -hmm. to get what they want. Some of them, I'm not saying that there aren't some people who are very committed, um, to changing, the playing field and mm-hmm. making sexual and romantic relationships more equitable. I think a lot of people drawn to, to non-monogamy are like that. Mm-hmm. A lot of people drawn to non-monogamy and this is, you know, anecdotal observational data on my part, but I hear from a lot of these people and most of them kind of intersect with um, a population of people who really don't like social injustice. They don't like social inequality. Mm-hmm. But that that doesn't mean that calling yourself ethically non-monogamous or consensually non-monogamous uh, or open makes you enlightened. I've been so surprised by how many retrograde dudes right. who just <laughs> want to keep their privilege going yeah. uh, call themselves ethically non-monogamous. Dude, your harem does not keep <laughs> Right. Oh, right. And there's, there's economic advantage to maintaining that, um, you know, and uh, there was, and I don't want it to sound disparaging because it's not intended that way, but I've heard the term in sort of casual friends circles, uh, that some of these dudes especially are, they, 
And I kind of chuckled at first when I heard the term, but then I had to think about it. They were defined as hobosexuals. In other words, they kind of bounced from woman to woman's bed, living in these, you know, short-term uh, relationships, calling them their paramours or their thirds or whatever term you want to, their, their um, partner at the time. And yet when you talk to the women, they were just like, wow, I, you know, I kind of was paying all of the bills while he was here. And yeah, he contributed this, that, and the other thing. But then I didn't know he was living with this other woman where he said he was actually on the road for promotion, you know, and, and all this wow. kind of thing. And, um, and you know, once I, I thought about that term that was used by, you know, a group of friend of mine, I was just like, wait a minute, that, you know, mind you, these, these particular, and I'm, these aren't predominant, I'm not talking about all men or anything like that, but these, you know, these particular conversations centered around, um, even though that these men had economic privilege, they had a, a number of privileges, they were still, you know, using this, well, she's an empowered woman. So, you know, I'm not going to interfere in her ability to take care of herself. I'm, I'm going to add to that by, you know, I can, I'll, I'll cook for her in the evening. And while we're there, you know, I'll help her with the garden and so forth. And I'm just like, hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. So if you think about it, she's paying for his labor, for being his her partner at the time that he's with. I mean, it's just it. There's so many nuances in all of this, and and I, just, you know, and and I think when I first heard this, I was sort of like, hang on, you know, I asked a lot of questions, and then I started seeing the testimonies of woman after woman after woman with similar themes like this, and I'm just like. Well, I don't think that's what ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy was supposed to look like. Yeah, like, dude, if you're expo- <laughs> if you're exploiting somebody, you're not ethically non-monogamous. Right. Men need to really look at their misogyny. You know, who, if you're listening, you know who I'm talking to. If I'm talking to you, you know it. Right. You need. To, you need. I'm, <laughs> I'm calling you to the carpet right now. You best look at your misogyny because mm-hmm. it's. Oh, girl, get him. You do not get a pass. You right. do not get a pass from being a Trump supporter and calling yourself ethically non-monogamous. You do not get a pass. For <laughs> does that you. even exist? You think? <laughs> you do not get. Yes, a pass. it does. Actually, it does. <laughs> Yes, one hundred percent. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? So that, yeah, that harem mentality, right. or what? Yeah, I, okay. Um, I've said, I've said what I wanted to say about yeah. it, building on what Victoria is helping us understand, and I, I appreciate so much because Whitney, don't you think that people would not expect this from our podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I one hundred percent agree. Right. I mean, there's this way in which you get shit if you criticize. Uh, what I'm going to call disclosed non-monogamy from now on, right? You set yourself up for criticism right. if you're progressive or, mm-hmm. you know, a femin- an intersectional feminist and you, it is presumed that you will not uh, criticize right. uh, non-monogamy. Um, and it has to, to be way more nuanced than that. It can't, we can't be, I think we do ourselves um, more justice by looking at these dynamics and calling out the inequities where they exist instead of just cheering them on going, yay, 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 we're this. No, I don't know. And maybe, I, you know, again, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit of a cynic and uh, I, maybe it's just in my nature to criticize things. But, 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 but <laughs> you know, here for that. Yeah, the idea of simply towing the line is distasteful to me personally. And 
I want to be able to think about these things and expand on what they mean and how they affect people. And that's ultimately what we're coming back to sexology and how I was trained is I want to know what people are doing and how they feel about it unfiltered without their, their own self-censorship, because that's how we can get closer to the truth. I just think this idea of posturing and submission Mm -hmm. is going to be so helpful to our listeners when they're thinking through, is this really consensual non-monogamy? So Mm -hmm. I want to thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you. Can we pivot for one second? Because when I grow up, I want to be the director of the Erotic Heritage <laughs> Museum in Las Vegas. Don't well, you, you know someone that might be able to help you out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Dr. Hartman is the current director of the Erotic Heritage Museum in Las Vegas. And sh- you, am, am I right, Victoria, that you basically are trying to preserve erotic artifacts, among them sexually explicit films. And a lot of people would be like, why do you want, probably not our listeners, but many people in the country and the world would probably say, why do you, why are you elevating trash? Right. <laughs> but can you talk to us about, cause I always, I'm, I'm always so interested to hear you talk about your positions on pornography. Mm-hmm. Um, cause they're really helpful. Uh, well, um, so there are a lot of people who think that porn is addictive, that it's bad for you. A a study came out recently showing that people, men who watched porn did not have more retrograde beliefs about gender. Can you fill us in? That's correct. Um, well, I, uh, just briefly, I've been at the museum since 09. Um, I came there as a student, uh, when I was working on my doctorate degrees and, left for a little while after graduation and then um, it changed hands and the uh, owner of the building uh, who I had gone to work for um, asked me what we should do with the museum. And I said, I don't know. I I have all this other stuff I'm doing. I don't know. And then I got a call like three days later, you've been appointed the director, go get your keys. And I went, oh, okay. (laughs) That was fast. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So that's, that was six years ago. And um, the, so the museum's mission is to preserve erotic artifacts and art. Uh, why do we want to do that? Well, uh, again, we come back to, um, in sexology, we research and, and um, teach sexuality from a position of, uh, we want to know what people do and how they feel about it. And art is art and artifacts are the, in our, in our view, the one true unfiltered way to see how people feel about sexuality, how it affected them, um, their time period, their culture, their own personal psychology, the sociology around um, sexuality at the time that the art uh, piece or artifact was created. Um, Academic studies are vital. We need those Mm -hmm. to be able to understand sexuality. They come with a set of rules, however. And erotic art and artifacts is without rules. It is, it comes from the person's internal workings and all of the things that influence them in that particular moment. So, um, Mm. that also applies to pornography. Well, 
first of all, let's look at pornography. How, what do we define as pornography? Well, that changes over time. And the, a lot of the argument that's used that pornography is addictive and it's harmful and so forth. If you ask those same people about 1950s erotic postcards from France or 1930s erotic art from Weimar Berlin or erotic art from the second century during the reign of Tiberius, uh, they'll go, oh, well, that's not, that's not pornography. That's, you know, just ancient history and so forth. And, and my argument in response to that is, well, that was what was obscene at the time. Yeah, like current porn is ancient erotic history in the making, right? Exactly. So uh, what's obscene and what's pornographic, the definition changes from culture to culture, time to time period, etc. So for the museum, it's, you know, the mission is, is to preserve that so that we do have that window into that time and how people felt about their own sexuality, the, the sexuality expression of the culture at the time, etc. Okay. And that includes what we now call today modern pornography. So I'm defining modern pornography as what was filmed for commercial purposes from, say, the 1970s forward. Okay. That too plays an important role in how we understand the culture of sexuality, what was taboo, and so forth. You can, we do comparisons of that at the museum right now. We have a room um, called the, Eferama, and I don't know if the word F word is usable here, but the Eferama. Okay, the fuckerama. And, um, yes. <laughs> and I was like, huh, what's the Eferama? Eferama, right? Uh, <laughs> now you know. So, um, so it's a round room with something like 40 monitors, and all we play in there are adult films from the 60s and 70s from different cultures that were producing them at the time. So, um, to expose people to even the differences in the early 70s to today where you had full bushes and it wasn't really all that performative. It was just people filming each other or themselves Mm -hmm. having sex Mm -hmm. and how that's changed over the course of the last 40, 50 years. So, um, and what's, what's, what is, um, seen today in modern pornography with, you know, very little hair and the type of clothing and, how they shoot the angles and so forth. And that's something that we also examine at the museum because we want to understand, you know, media. Media is often a response to demand. Well, if you have the kind of demand where you're talking about either Bush or no Bush or what have you, mm-hmm. that's that talks that that's that's speaking directly to the culture at the time and what people are looking for. So we can understand a lot about a culture from it's pornography as well as, as we're defining it here from, you know, what's filmed commercially from the seventies forward. Wednesday, when are we going to go visit? <laughs> I, I was just thinking, you know, when we go, can we get a special tour yeah. from Dr. Hartman? Yeah. When, when will we be able to travel? Right. I'm already like thinking about what I'm going to wear to the museum. <laughs> and where are we going to take Victoria to lunch afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the, what have you found have been the most popular exhibits within well, the museum? So let, I'm going to preface what I have to say with this. Um, there's, there's a lot happening at the museum right now, which is even a surprise to me. Uh, I was approached back in March or February by a, um, well, I can't disclose any network information by a producer and well, in a nutshell, we signed a three-year contract for a reality show that we've already started filming. 
Oh my God, fun. So there's that. I love reality TV. <laughs> yep. Um, and then <laughs> and on the heels of that, um, uh, the, our grand patron was so excited by that, that he's moving us to a location much more centrally located that's all... Um, Oh, I really want to share it, but I've got a, I've signed a bunch of NDAs and stuff. But I, I, I walked the facility last week, and I'm still, I, I'm still having this reaction of a combination of joyful tears and awe oh. and surprise. Um, where he's, where we're moving to. So a lot's happening in the next six to nine months. But it's so exciting. I'm so excited. so excited. I'm so excited. Uh, yeah, and it was. It's just been, and our producer is wonderful, and we're just getting so much support. Um, so, uh, oh gosh. Okay. Anyway. Oh, um, so, um, uh, oh God, what was the question? I totally well, forgot. you know, we, well, first of all, oh, what was asking you, what's exhibit? the most popular exhibit? Right, most popular exhibit. Um, oh gosh. Well, you know, uh, I would have to say, um, we have, a an exhibit upstairs called the flesh exhibit it's a survivor wall so there's an artist in eugene oregon her name is tracy sador and she um had a project called the jada jane project and what she did is she met up with she's a, a survivor of childhood abuse and she mm. met up with a number of different survivors to interpret their either their trauma or what they used to survive in the form of art. And she took these amazing images of personal expression. And when I was doing the work at the Rape Crisis Center, um, we had what was called a story group. And it was a 10-week group where people, we went through a series of exercises. And at the end, people told their story for the first time in front of others. And so we lined the walls with notepaper. And mm. over that notepaper, we put Tracy's photography. And so we have, I'd say, a good third of the museum upstairs where people have written their survivor stories alongside the art. And people come down after, and we call it the flesh wall because it was her flesh exhibit. And wow. people come downstairs and they have all these, they share like what, it meant to them to stand in front of that wall and to witness those expressions. And it's everything from tears to joy to awe. And, and so people comment on that exhibit a lot. The other one I think is, um, the, um, I just have to say that gave me goosebumps yeah, while you were explaining it's, it's that. Powerful. Mm -hmm. We were going to change it out years ago, but it just continues to affect people. So we left it up and I'm hoping we can have an iteration of that at the new museum, but, the other one I would have to say is probably the World Erotic Collection because um, it's a collection of erotica that dates back 400 years um, from 27 different countries. And it's so diverse um, and it really allows people to see the different ways different people in different cultures express themselves sexually. So people comment on that a lot too. And ad adjacent to that, we have... Um, the Roman exhibit where we have um, uh, the brothel coins that were used um, in Pompeii um, and um, a number of other sculptures and so forth in there and, and how Tiberius and, and during that time, during the second century, uh, he, um, that, that particular ruler uh, was very uh, sex positive, if you want to use that terminology today. <laughs> 
Um, and it, it really shows people, you know, again, like I keep coming back to the history of sexuality. The other one that really stands out, I'd say that's, that's been the most popular, um, which is a temporary exhibit is the voluptuous panic exhibit. And that was, um, that's an exhibit, a collection of Mel Gordon's, uh, notes and books and other, um, ephemera that he used for his book called, um, voluptuous panic. And it talks about the hedonism of 1930s Weimar Berlin before the rise of Nazis. Mm. And a great, uh, a great period. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. And he did just such amazing work. And we got the collect, we were contacted by his estate shortly, not, I think under a year before he died or after he died, and meeting his family was just love. I wish, I wish I could have met him. I loved the book from years before. And when we got the email, I, I kind of ran through the lobby of the museum whooping about, and my staff is looking at me like, okay, Dr. Victoria's lost her head again. Um, so, uh, that is, that is a fantastic, and that's actually leaving the beginning of next year. So, um, it's, it's, you know, a fantastic collection and people actually talk about that one a lot. Well, I'm super excited. <laughs> yeah, what a gift for people to be able to walk through a physical space yeah. right? That, that, you know, was curated by your mind, Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> not just mine. I couldn't, I could not, I could not do it. I have my staff, I've had everyone that, I, that works at the museum has worked there at least one to four years. Um, we're a pretty stable group. And if it wasn't for them, I couldn't do the work that I do because I come with to them with all these crazy ideas of things I want to do. And they've found a lot of fun in that. They also like to challenge me and go, okay, that's a little bit too out there. Um, but it's, it's, encouraged, <laughs> it's encouraged them to, to speak up as well. You know, my curator, Mercala, um, she came to me when she was studying her bachelor's in anthropology and she said, I want to do an evolution exhibit, but I want to do it around sex and reproduction. And I said, yes. And so she did, yes. she did her exhibit and it's, it's a, a third of the downstairs. Um, and it's the evolution of human sexuality. And she did a really great job on it. Oh God, I can't wait yeah. to see so that. We're very sciencey too. Our downstairs is very science and history. And then upstairs is more the art and artifacts. So you guys who are listening to our listeners, that's the Erotic Heritage Museum in Las Vegas. Maybe by the time you're able to tra travel to Las Vegas, it will be in its new location. Yeah. But wherever it is, uh, if Victoria and her staff are there, it's going to be lit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can I? Um, Victoria, is there anything we could talk to you all day? I always say that, but I always mean it. But again, it's not a competition, but I've never meant it so much when I say <laughs> no, no. that I could talk to a guest all day. Like just brace, 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 because I'm coming to Vegas. Um, is there anything else you want to share uh, before we wrap up here and tell people how they can find you on social media? Um... Sure. So our, the museum's website is eroticmuseumvegas.com. Um, and it, it, it's, it's pretty informative. Um, we have, you know, highlights of our exhibits on there. Unfortunately, we don't have any shows right now because of the, the COVID. Um, we did have, we do have a show called Puppetry of the Penis and all you have to do is Google them and you know how popular. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. That's fun. I think I'd like that. They've been touring for 25 years. Uh, and, um, but of course with COVID right now, we're just, 
we're being extra cautious um, to not have the performers or guests in, in a, a closed space right now. Um, but they're fa- they're fabulous. Um, and uh, on Twitter, you know, I, I, I am not proficient at social media at all. I'm more. You're good at picking fights with me. Yeah, I'm really good. At, yeah, yeah. You guys didn't <laughs> talk about that. I and love you. So you. No, you were so gracious. I really appreciate it. Y'all um, didn't talk about how y'all met officially. I was waiting for that. Everyone needs a little insight, just a little peek. Go ahead, Go ahead Victoria. Oh, uh, well, I just, um, I recall um, this, the, the discussion starting around this na- this idea of ethical versus disclosed and consensual. And I I di- I was ornery and I was like, no, 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 it has to be ethical because da, 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 da. And um, <laughs> you got right up and were like, no, and here's why not. And I, I love <laughs> that because you challenged my own dogma around this. And I so needed that. Um, and you enlightened me in such a great way. And I really like, I, I love women, powerful women who come back and say, no, and this is why and I'm going to make a really good argument for this. And I go, you are so right. You are right. I was not expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? This is, I think it's great also for people to know you can be in an argument with somebody on social media and it can be okay. And yeah. then it can lead to a really collegial relationship and a friendship. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It, and yeah. I've met some of the best people that way that I, and I think that's so important. And I have friends all over this, all over the spectrum, although if they go too hard, right, Trumper, I, 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 I really struggle. Um, but I've even got some conservative folks that I, that I follow and interact with on social media. And, um, there have been some really, really great conversations and I get to learn. And that's what, what's important to me is I get to learn from you, Whitney. I get to learn from you Wednesday. I get to learn from, um, so many people that, you know, enlighten me to other trains of thought because I think it's really easy for us to lock ourselves in our bubbles and become dogmatic. And even I've struggled with that. So um, you can absolutely do that. Yes, you're right. And on Twitter, you're at Dr. Victoria, yeah, right? On Twitter, I'm at Dr. Victoria. Um, the Facebook, the, the, the Facebook, I generally, um, uh, you know, give out the one for the museum, which is Erotic Museum Vegas on Facebook. Um, but I also have a, I also have a podcast and I have a podcast with uh, um, Josh Corum. He's a professor of sexuality in the social department at UNLV and it's called Sex Nerd Podcast. Um, we have so a YouTube, great. we have a YouTube, uh, you know, we, we were shut down for a lot of months just because we had to move all of our production to the house, our homes. Um, so, um, but we do have the sex nerd podcast on, um, YouTube and we're just, we just started recording again and we actually want you guys to be on. We talked about that at our last recording. I was like, look, we have to have these people. Uh, We'll be there. And he was, so he was really excited about that. Um, and is this your co-host, this big hunky man? Yeah, Josh. Yep. That's my co-host. Yep. (laughs) Wow. Um, I too am also, uh, (laughs) non-monogamous and we actually met on Tinder. (laughs) Okay. Started, uh, I was still married at the time and we started dating and it turns out we, we ran in similar circles for many years and never met. What? Yeah. And we hit it off um, and we dated for about a year and then he moved with his um, now ex-wife over to Okinawa in Japan where she was um, 
moving for a job and uh, they lived on the base over there. And then when he came back, we had a show called Baking Naked uh, for a while. And that was a lot of fun. <laughs> we weren't naked, but our co-hosts, our, our co-stars were. And then, uh, and we switched from that to the podcast now. And, um, and it's a lot of fun. He's really, really good to talk to. And I love to challenge him because he has all the privilege. <laughs> oh my God. You guys, you guys, it's called Sex Nerd Pod. Yeah. And you know, yes. f- for everybody who hates on Tinder, <laughs> some great things. Some great came. things. Well, I have met, I have, uh, uh, you know, Josh and I aren't lovers anymore, uh, but I met someone else there um, last November and he's also really wonderful and we are, we're still seeing each other. I, I've slowed, you know, I, I, I'm not really dating during COVID right now, but that was something that was already established. So I, I continued that. And when it's safe again, I'll, I'll start playing the field, I guess. But right now I'm pretty content with just one. <laughs> You just, you're good for now. We can yeah. just lock in it down a little bit, but little you know, bit. there's no, there's no telling what's going to happen. Thing, that's the great thing about non-monogamy is it doesn't have to be always non-monogamous. We can ebb and flow between abstinence and monogamy and yeah. non-monogamy. And that's what I love about, that's what I love about the non-monogamous community is, is we don't have to lock ourselves into one uh, style, you know, it's fluid and I dig that. So. I dig that too. I think that's such a big message. It's like you might choose that for now, but in a little bit, maybe not. And that's okay. You don't have to be stuck. Right. (laughs) Right. Believe it or not. I totally would love to have you guys on the podcast. And also I would so love to meet in person and show you around the museum and all the other cool places off the strip. We actually have a forest here. We have a forest. Um, that's you, in Vegas? Yes. It's only about 30 minutes from my house. I take my dog up there all the time. We have the lake, of course. We have snow and we have the desert. Oh, we could do so much. I'm telling we you. We could do so much and we're going to. Awesome. It's just 100%. a question of when. Yeah. Uh, so Dr. Victoria Hartman, that's uh, she's Dr. Victoria on Twitter. You got to check out uh, the, the museum and we have to have you on again, Victoria. Thank you so much for being here with us. Oh, I really appreciated the invite. I'd love to come back and I'm looking forward to having you guys as well. Absolutely. Chat soon. All right. Thanks, guys. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah, leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.